Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax and unwind tonight with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy work week flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hello, nerds! This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby! And I am your host, Liv. July is Disability Pride Month, so when better to talk about Hephaestus, this iconic and super important but also disabled god. So today's episode is a conversation, and this one is, like them all, let's be honest, I have the best conversations, but it is so fascinating, super interesting, so important. Ugh, I am here today talking Hephaestus along with disability in myth and the ancient world in general with Kyle Lewis Jordan. 
he and I had the best conversation, super interesting and in-depth to the point where today's episode is simply part one because he and I covered so much when it comes to Hephaestus as a disabled character in Greek myth alongside myths that feature this god, other concepts when it comes to this topic generally in antiquity. Kyle also focuses on Egypt and the East, and so there was a lot of talk about that as well. Honestly, I could not cut out enough of it, so you are getting two episodes. This is part one. You will note it does end on a reasonable and sort of fully fleshed out way. But next week, we're talking even more specifically Hephaestus's relationship with Athena, because that is really interesting, along with him as the volcano god and representation when it comes to Hephaestus and disability in Greek myth. Just honestly, as always, so fucking fascinating. I can't say it enough. I Every week I get to talk to these incredible people and everyone has something new and unbelievable to share with me and thus with you. Hephaestus is a character that I have really done dirty uh, in the past. You know, he is so uh, complex and interesting because he does such shitty things, but it is so important and interesting to look at him as a character in a separate way from that, not to discount the shitty things that he did, but to look at him kind of beyond that, to look at him as a complex character and all of the different things that went into him as a character, as well as all of the things that are unique to him in terms of, of his treatment from the other gods and the way that he is viewed and discussed, it it all just adds so much to him and I think makes him so much more interesting than I had ever considered before. You know, we, again, it's not to discount that he does some real shitty things when it comes to Aphrodite, but to look at him beyond that and to look at him as more of like a fully fleshed out character, something I'll admit I have not done enough. But fortunately, because of this conversation I had with Kyle, not only are you getting two conversation episodes this week and next week, but next Tuesday, the narrative episode is going to be about Hephaestus because... I am nothing if not inspired when I have these conversations, especially when it comes to characters that I have not looked at with, you know, the lens that I want to or have not looked at as deeply as I would like to. I'm always looking at him in the way that he interacts with Aphrodite, which tends to be shit, but I want to look at him in this much more, you know, overarching and much more focused on Hephaestus as a character versus Hephaestus as a foil to Aphrodite and Ares. Super fast. Anyway, I will not keep going on. This episode is part one of that conversation. I hope you love it. It was completely incredible to have. He, Kyle and I talked for two and a half hours. Um, you're not getting all of that today. Just a regular length episode. And then next week, back with more. <sighs> Conversations. Who really is Hephaestus? Disability in Greek myth with Kyle Lewis Jordan.
thank you so much for being here. So why don't you start by telling us kind of what you study and, and you know, what your interests are in this realm? I am a postgraduate student at University College London's Institute of Archaeology, currently uh, researching um, the archaeology and heritage of Egypt and the Middle East. I um, am a disabled uh, person. I've, I have cerebral palsy and I, that obviously informs my work. I broadly focus on the realms of religion, magic, and identity in the Egyptian world, but with a specific focus on the representation and approaches to disability. Uh, and I'm currently, my, my thesis topic is actually uh, looking at the role and significance of disability and bodily difference in pharaonic court society. So I do a lot basically around the body and representations of disability, hence why, despite not being trained as a, as a classicist, mm. I take a lot of interest in Hephaestus. And I did, I, for my undergrad, I did do my, um, my um, uh, dissertation was on a comparative analysis of approaches between Egypt and Greece. So Hephaestus was one of the key focuses of that. And my interest in him kind of from the sidelines has only grown. Yeah. So, I mean, well, then we'll just jump right in. So, I mean, I'm happy to talk about, I mean, whatever and all of, you know, what what you mm. study when it comes to this, because I think it all sounds fascinating and, you know, something that doesn't mm -hmm. probably get talked a lot in terms of outside of academic circles specific to that topic. So I mm -hmm. think that's really important. Um, but specifically Hephaestus, I, I mean, that's why why you're here, I think. Hephaestus is so interesting. And, you know, as a, a person who, you know, is not disabled, I've never focused much on of his, on his um on his disability besides, you know, pointing mm -hmm. out how problematic the early the translations have been. You know, he mm -hmm. he just go right out and say it. Like he's always described as like the lame god, which is the lame so god. dark, it, it, you know, in so many ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I've gone with that, but my focus is always on him as just such a shitty guy when it comes to like Aphrodite yeah. and Aries. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is, um, this is definitely one of the complicated things and one that, you know, I recently have got into a few conversations of, and to be absolutely clear, you're not wrong to see him as a shitty <laughs> yeah. guy. Like I've, none of, none of what I kind of try and get people to think about is try to absolve him quote unquote, or to make you feel sympathetic. I don't think he's a, he's an Olympian. He doesn't need your sympathy. So <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like he is, he is like, still capable of being just a shitty person as the rest of them uh or shitty yeah. being i should say but um, yeah. <laughs> effectively um what i do try and get across more so and this kind of comes in with the translation and mm -hmm. all about reception so that ties in nicely with the most recent episode with dr austin mm -hmm. is is the idea of like how that is perceived both by the greeks themselves and by us today and and in the and in the many intervening years since yeah. i mean even by the even by the romans like kind of time when they came to prominence and were starting to mess around with 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 the greek myths they they had some very interesting kind of takes on on um, vulcan as they mm. called him i mean namely by erasing the disability entirely almost uh, like they, they 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 never really acknowledge it obviously you still get the stories of uh, for them, obviously, Venus and Mars and the and the cuckolding, as it gets referred to by some scholars. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's it is, um, yeah, his clubbed foot, as it's often kind of agreed amongst scholars. That's okay. like if you were to 
decide the embodiment of his impairment, that is how it would often be referred to as a clubbed foot. Mm. Uh, sometimes in translation, it gets referred to as a crooked foot or a lame foot. But again, that's very dated um, mm-hmm. and just very, as you said, not not great. I mean, this is the <laughs> actually this would might, might be a good place to start, and that is that mm-hmm. in a lot of reception of Hephaestus, especially more modern. And when I say modern, I don't just mean today. I mean, like, say, in the last few centuries or so, mm-hmm. you know, because if we think on the time span of ancient to today, that's quite a lot of time. So modern yeah. <laughs> is quite relative. But like the the presentation of Hephaestus is often like he gets what I like to be referred to as quasimodoed. Like mm. he gets made to be a lot more uh effectively for lack of a better word monstrous than mm-hmm. than he really was even to the greeks i mean like in hesiod's theogony like literally the description that we're given of him i mean it isn't even a physical description it literally says that hera kind of gave birth to him out of fury and frustration with zeus for birthing uh, athena and that will be something that will come up much later i imagine if we do talk about hephaestus and athena because there's a lot there as well oh yes <laughs> But yeah, it literally just says, gave birth to the renowned Hephaestus who is endowed with skills beyond all the celestials. So all it says is that he is a very well-endowed god and that he obviously has this great skill. It doesn't say anything about being gross or deformed. And in fact, in his physical descriptions from various other sources, the general gist that you get is that while he does have this clubbed foot and he has some weakness in his legs generally otherwise he's described as having a rather large torso a rather thick neck and some and a hairy chest that's it he doesn't in in the rest of his description he is pretty much what you would imagine an olympian to be Mm -hmm. in every possible way except for the one way that his mother rejected him for which was the his his crooked foot and Mm -hmm. and that I, i i find just really interesting to think of how from then to now, how he has been shaped and changed into this far more sort of grotesque sort of individual and what that says really about what we perceive when we think of it. And this is where I also, this is why I was so interested in Hephaestus because when I would notice him and the first time I started getting into kind of the ancient world and I saw him, like I I remember going to the British Museum for the first time and you see the Parthenon uh, frieze in in the gallery and you see him represented on the frieze and he has the walking stick mm. and you think to yourself uh, uh the, the the kind of crutch rather sorry to be more mm-hmm. specific and and you think oh that's interesting because when you think of olympians you obviously think of the very perfect the very kind of just peak power sort of beings and and then you see uh hephaestus and then you would ask i would ask my uh professors when i was doing ancient history and egyptology for my undergrad so it was between it was a dual honors between history and archaeology and in archaeology is where i did all the egyptology and basically in the history is where i le- i learned about the history of the near east and of greece and rome mm. and whenever i talked to my greek professors and asked them about what they thought about hephaestus the the response i would generally get was um they would ask, uh, or no, they would say that, oh, you know, that's just to reflect the nature of being a smith in the ancient world because it could be quite crippling work. And that is true. Mm. That is not untrue by any means. And I don't, I don't want to say that that isn't part of it, but I somehow struggle to believe that, uh, that, that, that a choice to represent an Olympian with, with, that, with that kind of embodiment didn't have something more to say. And so when I think about it, and when we think kind of going back to what I was saying about his conception, so as I said, like he is conceived by Hera after witnessing Zeus conceive Athena. And, and in Hera's way of how sick of her husband's <laughs> shit she is, uh, is like, okay, fine, 
uh, I could do this and I'm going to make him even better. I'm going to make a great and powerful god of my own. And she does, by all intents and purposes. Mm. She makes, uh, I would argue, for my money, one of the most powerful gods on Olympus, as we can also get into. But like, I, I think, yeah, it's just he is perfect in all the ways that he was meant to be, except for the way that Hera wants him to be. Mm-hmm. And that's why she throws him off, <laughs> off Olympus mm-hmm. and it goes from there. So, yeah. Well, and what's interesting, too, about him and that whole birth story, because, you know, I always have to come back to this idea that Zeus conceived Athena, which is actually Mm. bullshit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody like, you know, I don't I don't know who it appears. It must be like the Homeric hymn or something, because like you say, I mean, you know, it's a little bit less in in Hesiod, though I suppose it was more about that and less about his disability in Hesiod. But regardless, like, you know, Zeus does not conceive Athena. Zeus eats her mother yes. and yeah, thus yeah. gives birth to her, which is so similar to, you know, Dionysus is sometimes used as an example of that as mm-hmm. well, but he also killed her mother and then sewed him up in her in his thigh, you know, like mm-hmm. Zeus did not create anyone on his own, whereas mm. Hera actually did, mm. you know, and, and, and not only that, but like you're saying, like one of the most important gods from a practical standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he was important all around, but the practicality of, of Hephaestus's importance is huge, mm-hmm. right? Like everything about what he did, it was huge, was so important to the daily world of the ancient Greeks. And so, you know, he was so important. He was so perfect. And, and Hera created him all on her own. So I also, I like to, you know, go back to that because I think it's, I mean, she handles it poorly. Though I think there are some sources that suggest that Zeus threw him off. There is of that. Anger. There is, there, there mm-hmm. are, there are um, variations of that. As is typical in myth, you will find variations. There is also a variation to the uh, the creation of, of Athena that mm-hmm. it features Hephaestus. Um, I just, mm-hmm, um, true. in my reading, yeah. there, is a, there is a great one where basically, because as you said, he, uh, Zeus eats Athena's uh, mother. And so then Athena being born, um, kind of decides, well, I'm going to go sit in the place of reason, which is the head, and then she gives him a massive headache. Now, what I like to imagine is basically Athena um, is like, oh my god, what is in here? And so basically <laughs> just starts lambasting him from inside, so he's got a splitting <laughs> headache. And in yeah. this version of the story, Hephaestus is basically tasked with like fixing it. So he just gets a massive great axe and just whacks him on the head. And what I like to imagine is he's standing there behind the throne of Zeus, about to give him a massive whack. And the one time Hera's proud of him for taking a whack at Zeus, she's just like, yeah, you go. Hit him so hard that the that the Titans and Tartarus can hear it. Um, yeah, so yeah. like, yeah, but there, there you go. He hits his head and, and so comes forth Athena. And I think obviously from that moment, in that variation of the myth, that's where their partnership kind of begins, because it's from that moment that you know he just kind of has that affinity for her and yeah but that that is true there there are many variations but i think the general consensus is that he obviously he gets thrown from olympus in some variations he'll fall straight into the ocean and that is where he is rescued by fetus and the other Mm -hmm. oceanids and they take care of him and teach him the ways of his craft in other slight variations he falls on the island of lemnos and Mm -hmm. it is there that he is uh taken care of and protected by the Kabiri, I think, is the, oh. is, is, the, is the local people. They are a, kind of a mythic people who are basically uh, renowned for their metal work. So mm-hmm. there, there comes in the connection with his, his ability to shape metal, which is actually obviously a very significant skill. And it's not just the fact that he can shape it, 
but as we'll probably go on to explore is the fact that he can give it life as well he can give it mm-hmm. motion um, but yeah it's there that he falls to Lemnos or into the ocean either way he is very close to volcanoes and that mm-hmm. obviously ties in with his nature he is he is very closely um, associated with volcanoes and if you think of their very uh, violent nature if, if if the way we imagine volcanoes, obviously their eruptions and things like that, that almost in a way, along with Hera's own anger at the moment that she was conceiving him, because again, her frustration with Zeus, ties in very much with his nature as well. He's a very, in most in most cases, he's he's he is described as a very kind of fierce sort of very 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 ill-tempered god, and that obviously ties <laughs> yeah. in with what we were saying earlier that he he is not a very very good at handling uh, um, certain 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 scenarios, as 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 we'll go on to mention, I'm sure. But but um, that is a very interesting thing that I think is is worth exploring as well. His relationship with anger, and I think I mean this comes from a much later source. But in the second century AD, um, Greek diviners uh, used to say that women who were angry at birth or at the point of conception, either way round. Uh, could give birth to to disabled children. That was oh. essentially one one thing that was kind of said to happen. So whichever came first and fought, because again, this is second century AD, so whether mm-hmm. they got this idea later on or whether this was an idea that had lasted a long time, either way, it's interesting, I think, to see the connection between the two, perhaps, that this idea is that he, he, he was born with this club foot, uh, which is uncharacteristic of other Olympians because of his mother's anger. And so that oft- often, of course, defines their relationship and the kind of on and off relationship that they have, mostly on Hephaestus's <laughs> side, where he really wants the affection of his mother. But there are some times where he just can't stand her. And, you know, he refers to her in the Iliad, I think, as his dog faced mother, which is like <laughs> a very strong, very strong um turn of phrase and there's also a, a great story whereby because obviously there's the story of the golden throne uh which yeah. he makes for her that binds her and that's how he kind of bargains his way back into olympus but there's also he he makes her a pair of adamantine sandals mm. um and she she puts them on and she immediately falls flat on her face and i just like <laughs> part of me just can't help but imagine her first just being very petty and just be like yes <laughs> I mean, so, he was a petty man. If he's anything, like all of the stories, <laughs> he he does he does come across as incredibly petty. That is very true. Um, yeah, but yeah, no. So there we go. We have these kind of his obviously embodiment of his of his of his clubbed foot, mm-hmm. but then the relationship that that has with his anger as well, and what that means, and it it kind of comes across in modern reception too. I mean. Um, I don't know how much you've played video games, but um, uh, like, you know, you have games series like God of War, where in God of War 3, Hephaestus plays quite a prominent role because Mm. he is the agonized, tortured kind of god who's sitting in his forge um, and um, he kind of helps Kratos, the, the main, the player character through his task of defeating the other olympians and eventually turns on him but that's just god of war for you and then but there's also the more recent one which i haven't played but dr kira jones has told me about this in uh, in uh, immortals phoenix rising mm-hmm. uh, basically you're you're helping each of the gods regain their powers and for hephaestus his power is tied to his anger like he is basically in the game he has lost his anger he is now a contented mm a contented person but that contentment means he's no able no longer really able to do the things that that he's supposed to do like so that's a very interesting thing in terms of modern reception how intimately he is kind of conceived with his anger and that without it he is apparently not really the god he's supposed to be which i think is very interesting but uh-huh. bear in mind obviously i'm reading this as a as a disabled person and for disabled people relationship with anger is a very 
very intimate thing as well. You know, the characterization mm -hmm. of, of disabled people as always angry or always bitter is very, very hard thing to navigate. Um, because if you do show any anger, people will just automatically kind of just assume, oh, you know, they're just another bitter, bitter disabled person. So it's, it's very, yeah. therefore, therefore, when I read Hephaestus, I always do kind of have that lens in mind. And so I'm always like, mm, you know, um, but it, it, it is, it is interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that is fascinating. The, the idea of the, you know, b belief, gosh, some of the things that they believed back then, um, but mm. the belief that, yeah, an, an angry woman uh, could give birth to a disabled child. I mean, of course, you know, it's always, always the fault of the woman too, which yes. is something that obviously is my, the, the thing I get most connected to. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I think Hephaestus is so interesting because I do think that like, you know, again, as somebody coming at it from, from, you know, the, an, side of non-disability mm. like he to me it, they don't make obvious connections to his disability when mm. it comes to his shitty character which is mm. i would see a, as a you know a good thing yeah. like it's he his his shittiness seems to be totally separate mm. <laughs> like he's just he's just a guy who you know and i think you know that he took some hard times in his life regardless like and you know maybe that just shaped certain things but i do I find his his character just to be entertaining in in the way that mm. he you know chooses to express his anger and his frustrations, and it creative in a way mm. that is just like you know fun to to <laughs> read about between yes. the the golden throne the sandals you know the way that the the golden throne then gets him married to Aphrodite mm -hmm. and like you know it, it's yeah it's it's a fascinating thing but then when you have this connection to the the disability of it and then you know add to it yes like the modern reception you were talking about of quasimodoing him which is a, a you know a, i think a powerful mm. word mm. to use to describe it when yeah he really isn't described as as anything of that mm. sort he's just you know i think to me he comes off a little bit more as i think the 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 development of the gods the mythology the olympians specifically are such good representations of the way that the greeks saw them as human as you know embodying all these very human characteristics mm -hmm. you know to the point where you know they would have seen disabled people amongst their community and then you know they they have a disabled god in a way that he is not um unable to do anything mm -hmm. he just you know has this disability and you know but ultimately is like this wildly powerful and important god and i find that incredibly fascinating mm -hmm. um yeah and then just the way though that i think like yeah certainly modern reception has made it incredibly incredibly like way you know more problematic than than it was back then <laughs> mm. yeah i think I'm, i mean i think obviously part of it comes in with obviously just how the changing attitudes towards the embodiment of disability so impairments mm. physical difference has obviously changed over the years and I, and i mean that 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 also obviously complicates our reading of these these tales of festus and things because it's actually in, uh, interesting that you bring up uh humor and mm. uh, obviously entertaining in some of his days he is a cunning god he is mm -hmm. he is very crafty and very um he he does like to scheme um especially <laughs> yeah. when he's trying to get revenge on people and there is meant to be a degree of humor in that and i mean mm -hmm. disability in terms of its embodiments and its impairments uh, does feature in greek uh, humor quite a bit i mean mm. um in terms mm. of hephaestus what i think the way I read it as a as a disabled mm -hmm. uh, man and as a disabled academic who studies the um, kind of interpretations and 
reflections upon disability in, mm. in, in an ancient world context, so attitudes essentially towards and what that says about that society's own kind of feelings about their own body because obviously it, it and mind in a way you can you, you can expand it further but the mind is obviously even harder to get into the body itself is already kind of the ancient body is already kind of disseminated across time like obviously we when we think of the classical world today we're thinking of more so the renaissance sculptures than the actual sculptures themselves mm. or they're they're thinking of the body in the same way that obviously the mind is even farther disseminated like uh, i mean nowadays you do get these great studies of the histories of emotion in 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 the ancient world obviously greek emotion is a great subject like i mean the iliad just as one example is just a story mm -hmm. that is all about emotion from beginning to end from various different vantage points which mm -hmm. has been taken advantage of for great retellings in a modern context but also i think oft often we we forget how central the body was how central the body was and still is to our own kind of embodiment within the world how we think of the world and ourselves because of it and so i do think well i guess uh, another way to kind of extrapolate on this idea is to actually kind of get to the nuts and bolts of why i think you can call hephaestus a disabled god because mm. to most modern kind of reception of disability in in both the terms of how it's studied in antiquity most scholars think of disability as by the social model of disability which just to briefly explain is basically a model which counter to what's called the medical model, the idea being that you, that the person who has the disability is the sole kind of almost problem of the of the thing. It's all within your own body and therefore has to be medically treated, fixed in order, fixed, quote unquote, in order mm. to kind of be part of society. The social model, in as simple as, uh, as an explanation as I can give, basically looks at society as the ones who create the barriers that force disabled people with their impairments. So there is a separation between the impairment and the disability. Uh, to have to struggle essentially and so mm. you know it's the breaking down of those barriers that will eventually hopefully remove mm -hmm. the disablement so I would often argue that the ancient world is a bit difficult to apply the social model or even the medical model to because these are models that are that were designed to address our much more present moment in the realities of the world we live in today. That doesn't mean that they're useless in our historical inquiries, nor is it a fault of those models. Those models were designed for a very specific purpose, but that purpose was never to encapsulate the full breadth and depth of what it is like to live as a disabled person. But if there was one scenario where I could think in the ancient world where the social model actually does prove a point, I would actually say it is Hephaestus hmm. because so as I said earlier, it's it, he has this clubbed foot, but that's it. But he is an Olympian still. He has mm -hmm. all this great talent. He has all this great power. Um, and he shows himself to be one of the most powerful gods on Olympus by his own craft, which they utilize for their own ends to ensure their dominion over the rest of the kind of divine world of, of Greece. Uh, obviously, he forges their weapons and armor that they use to fend off many foes, uh, the Gaiganamaki, the all those sorts of other threats and 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 stuff. He he forges obviously their homes on Olympus. He he creates all sorts of things. And like I said earlier, he has the power to give life to inanimate things. He mm -hmm. uses the fire of the forge because he has this special affinity with fire to be able to breathe life into things that otherwise would not and that's quite significant because that means he's kind of outside of that kind of natural cycle of fertility he doesn't 
need to be part of that. He can create life without that, which makes him quite powerful as far as the other gods go. But it's also his power to bind as well, which is a key thing, is that by being able to bind these other powerful beings, i.e. Hera, Aphrodite and Ares, he, he, he has control over them in a way. And that, I think, is obviously quite a threat to the others. So when he's bargaining to get back into Olympus, I think, you know, this is obviously my interpretation. That's obviously key to bring in. Mm -hmm. But I think there is some conscious acknowledgement on the part of the other gods to be like, "Mm, maybe we should bring him in because otherwise if he keeps going like this, uh, that could be a real danger to the rest of us. And and in fact, it's obviously, he knows that they can't like free Hera any other way. So it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of a conceit on their part that yes, he's the only way we're going to get her out and we need to get her out because otherwise it will be of harm to her otherwise. You know, they, they have to bring him in. So how how do you disable him as well? Because the other thing is, is um, you know, his mobility in and of itself. Like, while we do have scenes of him struggling, most notably, obviously, the beginning of the, the Iliad, uh, where he's toing and throwing and huffing and puffing and, and delivering the drinks, to which the gods are laughing. Mm. Otherwise, um, his mobility is actually doesn't seem to present much of an issue because, of course, he creates these mobility aids for himself in order to get around. So there is obviously his um, automatons who help him around the forge and are capable of of doing jobs for him as well. Uh, you have, there is literally, I, I can't remember where, I apologize, but there are attestations where he is claimed to have created the wheeled chair. It's more like a chariot than a chair, but it's still mm. cool that it gets translated as wheelchair. I like that. Yeah. I like just to think that he is the one who created it. But he basically, his mobility isn't actually an issue unless it's the Olympians themselves that make it an issue. Think again mm. to the start of the Iliad. They're the ones making him deliver the drinks in that way. So how do, how do you disable him then? Because by all accounts, mm-hmm. he doesn't seem very disabled. I would argue he's disabled by the fact that the other Olympians, in order to keep him in some form of check, essentially, um, they torment him. And like mm-hmm. I said earlier, you have that example of him being forced to do physical labor that they know he will struggle to do, but mm-hmm. they expect him to conform to the Olympian ideal, which like the social model of disability, society is expecting disabled people to conform to what they can't instead of adapting for their needs. So in the same way, the Olympians are expecting Hephaestus to be as Olympian as they wanted him to be, but he obviously cannot in his own way. Um, and that is what disables him. And it goes further. Like like I said earlier, he can bind. And Zeus being the also very cunning, very conniving bastard that he is, <laughs> essentially forces Hephaestus, or maybe forces is the wrong word, he... he mm deceives him into binding Mm -hmm. Prometheus. Mm -hmm. And Prometheus is his kinsman. So the two are quite quite close. So he it's and and Hephaestus laments having to do this. He laments Mm -hmm. having to bind his own kinsman because he knows how dangerous and how how harmful that is to someone he really cares about. In the same way, uh, going to that story of Aphrodite and Ares and his his reaction to that whole thing. Now, obviously, it goes without saying, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that is a massive overreaction. I am not denying that in any way, yeah. nor am I denying that, that Aphrodite did not have fair reason. Like, you know, she is in a, in a marriage against her own will and there is no love there and she is the god of, goddess of love. What's mm-hmm. she going to do? Uh, and I did see some, I, I did in one conversation with someone, uh, they referred to it as slut shaming, which I think is a very interesting mm-hmm. kind of modern interpretation of it, which is valid. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, very, it's a very fair way of reading it. 
But what I would say to take away from it, if you go back and read it, what what I take away from it, what I find interesting is that in that moment, I think Hephaestus is denied his agency because mm-hmm. the reason he is doing that is not only because he's hurt or whatever. I mean, he is clearly by a great degree, mm-hmm. but fundamentally what he's doing by entrapping them and getting all the other gods to come and see, he's trying to get his dowry back, which mm. by by the standards of the day, by the by the kind of the, the, the worldview of the day, he is entitled to by all accounts mm-hmm. because his wife has has cheated on him. Um, and so he's demanding that Zeus give his give his dowry back, but Zeus mm. doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He just refuses outright to give it to him. The other male gods are obviously having a whale of a time because they are a laughing at him, uh, Hephaestus. That is obviously mm-hmm. for being cuckolded. They are obviously goggling over Aphrodite, and they're also laughing at Ares. I think is worth saying because mm-hmm. he got ca- he got captured by Hephaestus. So mm-hmm. they, they find the whole thing hilarious. The 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 the, the goddesses don't don't come to see because they are I think the translation says shamed, but uh, you know, whatever that means. That just mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think obviously um you could also interpret it as they're just like this stupid male bullshit. <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> um, Better than anyway. <laughs> but yeah, it is it turns out that Poseidon in the end has to kind of say, look, I will pay you the value of that dowry in order so that you let them go. Because again, binding is a very serious thing. And if you found Aphrodite in particular, I mean, Ares and Aphrodite both being bound is a bad thing, but mm-hmm. Aphrodite in particular, this goddess of fertility and, and 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 love and all these things that are very, very vital for the world to keep on going is kind of like, no, we can't, we can't keep her trapped forever because when she's bound, when gods are bound, they're powerless or they start mm-hmm. to become powerless. So that's the key thing. You can't, can't leave them like that. Um, that's one of the few ways in which an Olympian can truly be friends. So that's why they're like, no, that's a bad thing. But the thing is, is that he has to go through all that just to get a fraction of what his other kind of kin could easily have demanded just on 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 the spot and would have mm-hmm. likely gotten. I always like to propose that if you were to reverse Ares and Hephaestus's roles in that mm-hmm. story, do you think the Greeks would tell it in the same way? And I think the answer is not. I think if if that had happened another way around, the Greeks would have told a very different story. And so it's just, it, it, most of all, I just want you to take away from it a thought exercise in which you think about the ways in which they are approaching him and in his being. And obviously, while I don't think his impairment is the sole reason for that, and again, it does not absolve him of his mm-hmm. attitude or of his nature and in other ways. And I mean, we can get onto his relationship with Athena as well in a moment. Mm-hmm. But um it is still something I think worth bearing in mind that this is in 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 a reality he is denied that that kind of uh, agency that his other kin would have had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I don't I don't in any way advocate that you again sympathize for him because he's mm-hmm. a god he doesn't need your sympathy and also he he's done plenty ill himself but it's more just so that when you when you read that story when you think about it I do I do ask that you think about it with that lens in mind. And recognize mm-hmm. that you can also kind of draw that distinction between his embodiment of disability and his other kind of um, natures, if it will. Because sometimes it does unfortunately become the case that the, the two kind of almost get intermeshed too much. And therefore people kind of, that's the takeaway from it. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's obviously very harmful. So mm-hmm. I, I, would, I would ask that people kind of, uh, if, you, if you go back and read it now, do do keep that in mind and think about it and be more critical about about that kind of side of the story 
Um, because if if you think about it, like the fact that he went to that extent just to get that thing says mm-hmm. a lot about his relationship with the with the other with the other gods, I think, and his mm-hmm. situation in Olympus. That the only places that he ever seems to feel happy are in his forge and on Lemnos. Those are the only two places that he ever seems to feel contented. Otherwise, he he's always kind of in a foul mood, or at least he is in a mood that suggests um, tension. Mm-hmm. So that's just interesting from my point of view anyway. No, I think that's, I mean, important and also so true, you know, because mm. even just making that straight comparison of like, if the roles were reversed with Aries, would that have happened? And you're completely right. They wouldn't have happened. Mm. And so, you know, so there's like an inherent connection in that just by presenting it, it that way, where it's, yeah, no one would have mm. come in and laughed at Aries, you know, mm. in that way. And they, it is really presented as something funny like something Mm. what a ridiculous thing Hephaestus tried to do Mm. you know what was he thinking thinking that he could get away with that and and Mm. things like that that I do think yeah the the connection certainly does need to be made that it Mm. wouldn't have have happened to to the other gods Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. There is, um, if if I may just quickly jump in, Please. there is another um, uh, connection because obviously that, that episode comes, I believe, from the Odyssey. That's when that occurs, if I remember. 
Uh, yes, but also in, in most detail, it's in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. That's it. Thank you. But there is also um, in the Iliad, um, not to do with Hephaestus specifically, but I do think it's an interesting parallel. And I made this for my um, undergraduate thesis in um, in uh, the second chapter of the or the second book, sorry, of, of the Iliad. Um, obviously, you have the Council of the Achaeans where they're coming together after the withdrawal of Achilles and they're all like, oh shit, what do we do? Uh, we've literally lost our best guy. Yeah, um, we're fucked. We're <laughs> fucked. Um, and, they, and they don't know what to do. So in that moment, there is actually a scene where a commoner um, called uh, Feris... Uh, I, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I always Feris- do, Feristes, um, who is uh, essentially, he's an old soldier who who now kind of serves the other soldiers and he's a part of Odysseus's kind of very large entourage if you will but he is described as as um being physically monstrous and mentally insubordinate so mm-hmm. he is clearly described as in in embodying what we would recognize as disability and in this scene he basically loses his rag and basically like like Hephaestus in a way he loses his rag with everyone else around him and he basically just tells them straight he basically just says uh, Agamemnon, you done fucked up. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially says you're a fool for having taken uh, Achilles' prize, um, and you've doomed us all. Essentially, you've doomed this campaign because you did this silly thing. Now, everyone is so taken aback by this, so taken aback that the only thing that can really be done, Odysseus, kind of leaps into action and basically beats him black and blue because mm-hmm. he spoke out against these superiors. He eventually scurries away. And uh, everyone is said to have laughed. But this is an interesting thing. And this kind of comes back to what we were saying about reception. It's never clear exactly how the audience is supposed to take this. How, how are they supposed to respond to this? Are they supposed to respond to the fact that this, that this uh, physically monstrous man apparently you know, spoke out of turn and got his ass handed to him by Odysseus? Or is it supposed to point out the fact that it took this man to say something, to say what was true... That they were that the, those so-called heroes were left so stunned that the only thing they could do was beat him silly. Mm-hmm. So it's never clear whether these characters are actually supposed to be laughed at, or or whether the laughter is more this kind of nervous sort of oh crap he's right, like, you know, like the, you know. And I think I like to interpret that scene as Odysseus and and the other heroes and Agamemnon obviously being ta- taken so aback that they're like oh crap, um, he's he's right, you know, but. God damn him for being right, and so they beat him up for it. Well, yeah. But yeah, yeah. In the in the same way, I think Hephaestus, obviously in his own nature, kind of does that within his own situation with the Olympians. He calls them out all the time for how they treat him, but obviously they just blow him off. No, that's so true. I'd forgotten about that scene. I just pulled out my copy to to look at it. Um, and mm. I and I remember it now. Yeah, it it it's so true because I mean, he's obviously right. You know, mm. like it, it, it and, and everything will go on to prove that he is mm. right. You know, we're only in this second book. So it's an interesting thing to wonder what the intention was there, because certainly in reading it now, you think like, OK, we're in book two. If you know the end of the story, you know that like this man is completely correct mm. in in his, you know, a- accusal of Agamemnon of just like fucking everything up, which yeah. he absolutely did. I mean, granted, like Achilles also is a deep overreactor <laughs> yeah so like not to suggest Absolutely. that like yeah not to suggest that only agamemnon is to blame both of these men are ridiculous yes um but at the same time yeah i mean anyone who was listening to the story i would imagine would think like oh here here is is this man who you know is completely 
accurate and, and calling Agamemnon out and you know but at the same time as much as I think maybe you know maybe Odysseus and Agamemnon whatever like they, maybe they did well Agamemnon could never appreciate that he was wrong but Odysseus <laughs> is supposed to be smart so yes but at the same time I think Odysseus is is that cunning Odysseus mm, in that mm-hmm. way where while um you know while this speech is correct and i think odysseus probably knows like he knows mm. that agamemnon shouldn't have done that and agamemnon did fuck up but he also knows that agamemnon is the one who's more powerful so he's going to beat the man senseless because regardless of being him being right odysseus is cunning he's not only you know smart he's not just going to go say like oh you're completely right mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he's kind of a dick you know like yeah. i love him but he's an asshole and he's like super problematic fave right yeah. like and and so he's gonna look at it and still say like okay well my best way of staying alive mm-hmm. is to beat this guy and tell Agamemnon that he was wrong mm-hmm. when obviously he's right and so you know I, I, you know again I'm coming at it from a much more I also like I, I have a literary background so I also I dive at these things of like I have an English degree and we like to mm-hmm. pick everything apart in addition to the myths so but of course you know the the connection is obvious to be made of like, yeah, mm-hmm. he's also explicitly described as all of these, you know, uh, yeah, what I forget the exact descriptions, but all of these uh, things that physically monstrous is, and, and mentally insubordinate uh, is the word. Perfect. Oh gosh. That's oh, yes. quite a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, those, those, uh, those aspects, um, certainly like come into, to the way that he's treated and, and maybe, if it was, you know, Ajax coming in and saying all of these things, Odysseus probably wouldn't have beat him up. He also yeah. couldn't have. Ajax would have beat him. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, it's it's all of those little implications. And, and mm. it's such an interesting, I mean, all yeah, it, it, it's, it's just interesting even, you know, from all of the different perspectives mm. of looking at it and thinking about all of these characters. Anyway, I... I I'm constantly thrilled with anyone bringing up any of these new, like new ways of looking at, at any oh, of these pieces. There's, al- there's always new ways of looking at these things. That's yeah. the, the, the wonderful things about myths is that they are. I think I, I, I said at one point in the past that they, they are essentially still living things and they, mm-hmm. and they are constantly reshaped by our own, ret- by our own retellings and interpretations of them. And that's what makes them so interesting, but it also means that there is so much to kind of pull out and to kind of look at, across various translations and copies that have come down across mm-hmm. the across the uh, years because like one 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 um kind of interesting detail that changes in some variations of the Iliad for example uh, when Thetis goes to Hephaestus to uh, have the uh, the armor made by by him for Achilles mm-hmm. uh, in in the quote-unquote original so the more extant Greek versions um that is just something that he does for her because obviously he's very endeared to her because of how she looked after um, him and cared mm-hmm. for him. Um, so he does that and he just gives it to her. In in a later Roman version of the myth, again, 2nd century AD, the 2nd century AD just seems to come up. There seems to be a shift in attitude somewhere because mm-hmm. in that version, he essentially um, tries to coerce uh, sex out of her in, in return uh. for making, yes, uh, it is. It is not something uncommon for the gods to do. Coercing sex in return for <laughs> no. gifts is 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 definitely not new. Uh, so no. he's not the only one who's tried this sort of thing. But it is. It is interesting that they make him do that, especially with his essentially adoptive mother, for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. That that is a very interesting sort of uh, conundrum there. Um, and it is. A, it is interesting why they add that in, and and God knows as to as to why they may have decided to do that but it is again in these various retellings and i think that adds to sometimes how he's perceived as this kind of 
uh, sexually frustrated god, even though in reality he is no less successful or or disastrous than any of the other gods. Uh, like he is described as being very happily um, engaged to Agalia, um, the the um, charity mm. brightness. Right. I always forget about that. Yeah, and there is also I can't remember the other one. Damn it. He's also described by Hesiod as being as being married to another lesser divinity. But that's the key thing as well, is that he he gets married to younger, lesser divinities, which by implication of status, because usually the, the marriage is to the eldest. So that kind of suggests that he is of lesser status or seen of lesser mm. status because he's marrying these go- these goddesses of lesser status. But to, from from the way I like to imagine it and interpret it, I doubt he would care too much. Like <laughs> I think yeah. you know, having these partners who actively seem to value him. So that's the other thing to bear in mind. We talk a lot whenever we talk about Hephaestus and we think about his relationships. We talk a lot about his frustrations and how it all goes wrong and stuff like that. But there are many other times where he clearly is shown to be quite happily. Uh, married so that is another thing to bear in mind but that also kind of comes on to I think I mean well actually before we get into that you did ask mm-hmm. that you wanted to talk a little bit about the automatons uh, mm-hmm. so before we go off on too much of another tangent because I was about to mention Athena <laughs> yeah we can get into that yeah we'll get into that but um, yeah yeah so the automatons and and Talos too because mm. Talos is someone I want to dive into I keep meaning to buy um, Adrian Mayer's book Gods and Robots I jotted that mm. down when you mentioned the automatons because it spurred mm-hmm, me to, mm-hmm. to do it again but um yeah like let's talk about about those and and talos because he really he does i mean i think he also is part of creating pandora too yes, uh, yes. Uh, from clay and everything yeah he mean mm-hmm. well he's the craftsman god so it mm-hmm. makes sense but i mean yeah please yeah there is there is so much to unpack there and i mean i come at it from a very interesting angle especially the 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 story of pandora and how he makes her from clay because mm-hmm. i'm coming at this again as as an egyptologist and in mm-hmm. egyptology and the egyptian myths uh the one of the ver- one of the origins of humanity is the uh, potter god uh, kunum who mm. literally makes man from straw and clay um mm. and that's very interesting also from histories of the body and the mind because it it essentially implies that we are very malleable beings we are be able to be shaped and changed and molded into various things and actually those near eastern influences because it, it spans into the into the hittites and the assyrians as well actually mm. um some some theorize that ties in with Hephaestus as well and his creation of automatons and moving images because that is a very kind of near eastern idea um mm-hmm. think of of the Assyrian lamassus the big winged bulls that were gate guardians Ooh. or the same with uh, lions as well um or any other like great and terrible beasts that you can imagine um they they were created obviously to to be protectors but the the idea for the ancients in their head is that these were animate things if not in the literal sense of being able to move then they embodied a spirit which was able to kind of do these horrible things to any enemies that tried to befell the gates and actually mm. you do get um for Hephaestus you do get stories i think in 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 the Odyssey um one story is about a palace that Odysseus goes to and it's protected by dogs, uh, bronze dogs that are made are said to have been made by Hephaestus. Oh. Uh, so Alkinos. Alkinos's dogs. Phaeacian king. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So yeah. And it, he marvels at these dogs, these dogs that are like literally meant to be able to animate themselves to, mm-hmm. to guard against insurgents. There is also um, a story from a not well this paper is from the 1980s so recent in kind of you know scholarship terms yeah uh, a recently um excavated kind of 
I don't know if it's Ostrica or, 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 or maybe a, a just some sort of uh, kind of written down statement. Um, yeah. Essentially, it speaks of a bronze lion that uh, Hephaestus made and buried on on Lesbos. Uh, it's actually entombed there. And what I yeah. love about this paper is that it refers to it as the lesbian lion. So I just I, I, I cannot yeah. help but imagine like this lion wrapped in the in the lesbian pride flag and, and Sappho <laughs> riding on the back of it, chasing off Hell, any men yeah. who try to come on to the Slur island. island. Yeah. <laughs> Slur Island, yeah. Um yeah, no, that's just great. But yes, he he essentially gets attested as having making these things. And I do think that's an interesting uh, kind of um one of his many feats is not only because mm-hmm. like I said earlier, he's able to give life to inanimate things, but the that life is is not always kind of in terms of, of strict animation, like being able to move. They can. I mean Talos is is a great example of that, but mm-hmm. it is also just in the terms of that they can almost encase that fire. They they put that inside of them and that mm-hmm. is kind of what empowers them to do um all these kind of terrible things to anyone who tries to do anything nasty to the thing that they're defending, be that a house yeah. or or an actual city or a place in the case of Lesbos. You know, this this lion is actually like from the description that's given of it it doesn't actually animate as in physically animate that's why it's buried in, in the ground but the idea is that right. it's buried in the ground and it's it it does encase this this fire so basically any ill that comes to the island is going to face the ill of the of the lion yeah and that is again it comes it, it's a very near eastern thing a very near eastern magic thing as well this this idea of um statues or or kind of monuments that imbue this sort of power so that's very interesting, and it reminds you just how interconnected, obviously, the the, the world is, um, mm-hmm. and something that often gets gets um, hotly debated even today. Like, I mean, everyone made the big uh, hoo ha over Bernal's Black Athena back in the, back in the eighties, mm-hmm. and how he obviously tried to draw the connection between Egypt and the Near East and, and Greece, and tried mm-hmm. to kind of dispel this idea that. Um, that classical Greece somehow just kind of came out of the ether, like all of a sudden, fifth century oh Athens gosh, was yeah. just there, um, you know, with all the, in- the enlightenment that uh, some old men apparently had. Um, but yeah. the, the white men, <laughs> um, old white men indeed. Yeah. Um, but the 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 obviously that has since been picked apart because he is kind of wading into this with not too much grounding in mm. in those areas. But it doesn't take away from the overall point that 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 these things are more interconnected than than people kind of really thought and the fact that you know there is a lot of influence that obviously just comes over because the greeks obviously in in reality are are traders seafarers by Mm -hmm. by by nature so they're they're all over the shot you obviously norcratis in in egypt you you have obviously in the in levant as well in obviously uh asia minor in turkey they're all over and so they are they are interacting with these people no one exists in a vacuum so in that same way, these ideas and, and these embodiments that come to when we think about the automatons and when we think about Hephaestus as well, you know, they mm-hmm. are interconnected and, and it's always fascinating to, to draw the combinations between the two. Yeah, well, and because and, I mean, that leads me to Talos, right, which is mm. which is the like enormous robotic automaton guy mm. that he creates to protect Crete. And so, I mean, there's some... There, I had uh, the my problem is I don't know enough about you know the eastern ones I, I always want to make very clear to my listeners the connections because I think that's important even though I don't know enough about their history or mythology but I mean even the Greeks made it clear they had all of these connections it, it's it's you know the the idea the you know placing whiteness upon upon Greece and Rome and mm. making them be this like bubble that they existed in that was like 
you know, this like white Western civilization invention bubble is, mm. is you know, wild and racist and, and so troubling. Um, but it, it's, you know, even they made it so clear, like, you know, that that's something that's placed upon them later. But they knew, like, you know, they took their language, they say, mythologically from Cadmus of the Phoenicians and their connections to Egypt are, are you know, huge and great and, and you know, talked about so much and, and North Africa, all of that. And, you know, and then so, but to, to bring it back to what you're saying about this connection to the, um, the, the bronze statues and automatons, that's fascinating because Talos is on Crete, which is obviously, you know, the closest Greek island mm. to Egypt and had the most, um, especially certainly like in, you know, the much earlier, they had so many connections mm. to Egypt through trade and through everything because they were so far south and such a big island. And so, I mean, that connection there is something I'd never made, made before of the, you know, the connection to the East and, and, and. Hephaestus's creation of this enormous bronze man to protect yes. the island like that's yeah. such a yeah that's that adds another layer to that mm. and and so fascinating and th- what you said about the fire within them as being their creation their life force kind of thing is is an additional I mean fascinating but also makes that explicit connection both to his um, status as craftsman god uh, and and god of fire and and all of that and yeah, I think that doesn't get talked enough about, you know, it, it is kind of all about his his anger and, and his, his bitterness towards Aphrodite and Hera. And I'm certainly guilty of that. I'll absolutely <laughs> own up. It comes out of my childhood love of Aphrodite that's never gone away. And like, that's always been my goddess. And so I immediately go to to those things. And also, uh, you know, it, I like Aphrodite and Aries. And so I'm like, Hephaestus, you're such an asshole. (laughs) All of these things. And like, he is. But also that that is something that it connects immediately to a thing that I try to do on the podcast so much, which is is not talk about these stories as if that they were, you know, uh, any kind of... I want to use the word truth because it seems to make the Mm. most point right now. It's not like it's a story that happened and therefore it is an objective truth. Yeah, no. It it is, you know, yeah, like like you're saying, you know, myths are living things, they're malleable and they change over time between sources. But also the thing I like to talk about most lately, the more and more I learn about it is who told the stories, whose Mm -hmm. stories got written down and whose stories that were written down survived. Mm -hmm. And so you have this, that is I always talk about it in terms of the women, but I think it's also equally applicable to somebody like Hephaestus, you know, and, and I wonder what stories we might not have of him, Mm -hmm. um, you know, what stories were told within, um, you know, circles of ancient Greek people, you know, be they disabled or not, or, you know, I mean, but I think especially maybe stories from people who had similar experiences to Hephaestus or just disabilities of their own or, you know, various things like that and, and what stories they might have told about him and, and how maybe they would have connected to him in such a positive way and those things we don't have, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a fascinating thing to think about, the just the things we don't have and, and, and how that then connects to somebody like Hephaestus who has been so affected by the stories that we do have, which you know, while they acknowledge his importance, but also definitely, you know, make really bold claims about the way he was treated by the Olympians and, you know, his own just personality yeah. and, and everything in there. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I think 
as you said, you always have to think about what's missing, and and mm-hmm. and and again, these stories for whom and by whom were they were they created? Um, and and yep. I think obviously, in in that sense, becomes even more complicated to untangle, especially when we're thinking about his his relationship with anger and how he displays it, because it's it's I I, I was very fortunate in in my final year of undergrad to take a module with a, a wonderful academic uh, a, a classic uh, Greek scholar called uh, Dr. Reet van Bremen, uh, and she does a lot on Greek youth. That's really her mm. specialty, and the a lot of the study of Greek youth ties in emotions, especially because Greek youth, which predominantly unfortunately refers to Greek men, uh, she mm-hmm. always laments every every class she would lament the fact that it was majoritively <laughs> that we had to talk about men and not women because we only unfortunately get very kind of extant sources on on young women. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, this young men have this very intricate relationship with anger as well. They are almost expected in some ways to to kind of display this anger at what they is kind of what as they as the as the kind of inheritors of the cities and of the spaces that they occupy when they reach come of age once they get through the epibea this is like the the coming of age ritual and they and they become adults they are expected to kind of utilize that anger to essentially gain their right as male citizens to to um, protect their city to protect their land and obviously to you know whatever else but it's interesting again going to Hephaestus and his anger. His anger is almost kind of the the over over kind of estimation of that anger, and he's almost the dangerous side of it. And it is interesting mm-hmm. how you could interpret some kind of interpretations of Greek Greek interpretations of disability. I I in my view do seem to reflect this as well. Like the disabled man is very much a threat to the health of the polis. You know his mm. his. His both in terms of his physical body, but also in terms of his his anger and his bitterness, and this kind of goes on into the Hellenic age, where you see these kind of statues, which are referred to in the literature today as grotesques. Uh, these are kind of terracotta uh, figurines of mostly men. There are some women, but there are mostly men uh, who are dis- uh, what we would say is like disfigured or you know deformed or horrible words like that, um, and they show like hunchbacks or or lame. Uh, lame feet as they would say in the literature so club feet or mm-hmm. or um a- any other, or, or sometimes dwarfism is one mm-hmm. thing that pops up and they're often shown to have these kind of wild sort of expressions and they've been interpreted various ways and some of them are very clearly scowls their anger and again these were made for elite men to have in their household they were they were they were placed in the household and no one's really sure exactly what they were for some people think they were they were for humor others think that perhaps they were there because it was meant to be a reflection of of like you know this is this is not what you are like you know this is this is this is this is what you could be if you were a bitter person or whatever so you should be grateful Mm. or or anything like that there's loads of different ways you can interpret it I'm not exactly Mm. sure how to interpret them but what I do think they were is that they were meant to be reflections on that and in that disability has always been society's kind of uh, way of reflecting upon itself like we always think of disability as the other but to me disability is a universal human constant which has always been there not just by the nature of human how humans are by their biological material we, we our bodies are malleable and they change all the time both in terms mm-hmm. of their own dna but also just in terms of our of our vital organs and and our limbs and things like that so disability will be it was there at the beginning and it will be there at the end. I give mm-hmm. you that promise now. But mm-hmm. um, I think in terms of human society, it has always existed in the mind's eye of society because 
disabled people are the pale mirror to that reality of humanity, which some societies will accept, some will reject, some will be somewhere in the middle. It's never a black and white thing. So in this case, I think those grotesques are a similar thing where they are a kind of reflection on this kind of, especially when you think of the Hellenic age, which obviously is painted by obviously the conquests of Alexander and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the aftermath of that, the, the, the competition between the various states that were born from his empire. And the, it was a very violent time for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. And so that is why in the, in the art of the age, there is this turn towards art that is more expressive, but also more violent in a way. It's, it's kind of more twisted, more emotion, and, and, and their faces are actually becoming expressive now. Whereas in the classical kind of style of art, it was much more muted in terms of its expressions. So mm-hmm. in that same way, I do think maybe Hephaestus, especially as, as time went on and as transmissions change maybe his relationship with the other gods the olympians is supposed to be a reflection of that attitude of the kind of the need to keep a pure and and well uh, maintained center uh, of order and of a standard of being that the these kind of disabled uh, individuals embodiments kind of are the the kind of pale to that norm and so they kind of keep them close because they want to make sure they're not a threat but obviously keep them at a distance enough so that they can never be fully a part of it. Again, that's just, you know, a very surface level reading. So it's far more complex than that. And there are many Mm -hmm. great scholars who are working on that to look at the intricacies of that. But that's like, it is far more complex than just what you would see on the surface. And in that same way, that obviously goes doubly true for the relationship with with the rest of the world and just the ideas that are being transmitted. I think it is very interesting, of course, that a lot of what Hephaestus does, like with Talos on Crete, and a lot of the other things he does in, in that kind of area of the Greek world, is obviously around where a lot of volcanic activity is happening. So this mm-hmm. is obviously, a, to the Greeks, I think this is obviously a place where they see him as being a very active person. I mean, I think to the Romans, um, obviously with uh, Sicily, I think the saying was that whenever Etna was erupting or was close to erupting, they interpreted that as obviously him being furious with uh, Venus. Uh, Mm. So that was just, that was, yes, I think the saying goes like, obviously Venus has yet again gone off with with someone else. (laughs) But it's that volcanic activity. This is a, this is a, I think often what we struggle with is that when we go to these places today, like you obviously you can visit Lesbos, you can visit uh, Lemnos, where actually their their international airport is called Hephaestus, which is I think is really, really cool. Yeah, it is. Oh, <laughs> I no, think that's that makes awesome. me so happy, and now I have to go. Oh shucks. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you go to these places, we obviously go there, and they're beautiful. They're they're scenic, mm-hmm. and and but most of the volcanoes now are extant. They don't really aren't active anymore, mm-hmm. with they're the exception sleepy. of one or two. They're sleepy. We go there now, and this is true of any landscape you go to. It's the same with Egypt. This is something Egyptologists always have to remember. You go to the landscape now, you don't realize how violent it was. Like, mm-hmm. you know, these eruptions were happening on a far more regular basis than than we can kind of imagine. And and that would that would like kind of shape communities and it would it not just in terms of obviously their makeup and how they had to move and live, but also just in the way that they saw the world. And so I think as well, that obviously does shape their relationship with their personification of that Hephaestus. And and they do see, and that's, again, maybe perhaps where his violent temperament comes from, but maybe also where his embodiment comes from. Maybe it's the fact that these volcanoes, these violent fissures in the earth, you know, on the earth's surface, you know, are, this, are what he embodies. He embodies this this kind of violent um, um, embodiment and, and 
And I, I do think there are many different avenues to which you could take it. And so therefore, by extension, these automatons, how he's wielding this power, this violence to create these wondrous machines mm-hmm. that, you know, even by his his other like kin standards, like they're like, wow, this is this is this is awesome, but also very scary. Like, mm-hmm. Again, this is part of the reason why they kind of want him in Olympus, because they don't want yeah. him sitting on his own building all these automatons, because that could be a serious threat to them. I mean, he yeah, he is a serious threat to them in general, yeah. his abilities and his 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 skill. Mm-hmm. Which is which is why I think it's 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 so interesting. Um, and he is he is far more interesting character. And just to go back very briefly, because you said, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you come at this obviously being such a stand for Aphrodite, which is which is fine. And I, I, I do want to again make it very clear you're allowed to not like Hephaestus. I'm not trying to say you have to like, you know, give him all the credence now or feel any sympathy for him. I know I keep repeating this, but it's more that I hope that from this conversation, what you will take away is that he's a far more complex character. Oh, nerds, as always, thank you so much for listening. Again, I absolutely love this conversation. I really, we just talked about so much, which is why next week you are going to hear part two, where we talk more about Hephaestus's status as a volcano god and what that means for him as a character, a little bit more about disability in the ancient world, some connections with Egypt and the East, reception of Hephaestus and how he has been changed over time from what he was in antiquity and how the ancient Greeks would have seen him to how he is depicted in pop culture today and everything that comes along with that. Honestly, so much more fascinating stuff to come. Thank you all so much. I am Liv and I love this shit. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time you name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax and unwind tonight with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy work week flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. 
Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.